So this morning we're going to be going through specifically Mark 4, verses 21 through 34, which is a series of both proverbs and parables about what the kingdom is like. So Mark 4, 21 through 34. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not in a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure that you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts it to the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown in, on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and puts out large branches, so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them, as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the chance that we have to learn some about you and your kingdom this morning, and I pray that you would give me your words to explain this, uh, because I know that in my own wisdom, I want to be able to come close to what your kingdom is like, and I pray all this in your name, amen. All right, so as we come back to the book of Mark, and as we're going, continuing to walk through this series, I want to take a little bit of time to kind of refresh us about the book of Mark and where we've already been in this sermon series, and because you can't take the academic out of school. These are my sources. I want to make sure you know where I'm getting the information that I'm talking through this morning. Most of them are Bible studies and uh, study Bibles, but I also found one journal article from a peer-reviewed journal that I'm going to use a little bit later. I promise not to get too nerdy on you, though. So now back into Mark. So as a quick refresher on the background of the book of Mark, Mark is likely the first gospel that was written. And then the book of Matthew and the book of Luke appear to have used bits of the book of Mark as their source and then expounded upon it some. We also see that it's written kind of like a docudrama filled with clips of Jesus' life. So it's not an entire treatise on what the life of Jesus was like, but it's a series of clips of his life and of his teachings focusing on kind of the most important parts of it. It was likely written to a non-Jewish audience. Um, so Mark goes through and explains some of the Jewish customs a little bit more than the other gospel writers. And there's two main themes that Mark has in his gospel. One is to narrate both the identity and the teaching of Jesus, and then the other is to present and defend Jesus's universal call to discipleship. It's kind of where we are now in the book of Mark as we go into chapter 4 and finish up chapter 4. So Jesus is still at the beginning of his ministry. He's setting up his ministry and establishing who he is and what his ministry is all about. And Jesus's goal is really to teach people about himself and about God and the gospel but as he's gone through and gone to teach people, he's also been doing these miracles. And so when the people come to see him, they're not really so much focused on the teaching. They just want to see the miracles, and they want to see the healings, and they want to see all that stuff. So while the people that are gathered around him are really focused, like, hey, let's see more of those miracles. Those are super cool. He really wants to focus on the teaching and teaching us the gospel. 
And so now we're in this section where we're starting to come to where Mark is actually going through the teachings of Jesus. So we talked about the parable of the sower last week, and this is continuing in that section. And when we look specifically at this section, it's a series of teaching about what the kingdom of God is like. And Jesus likes to talk through these parables. So according to Merriam-Webster, a parable is a short, usually fictitious story that illustrates a moral attitude or a religious principle. And before we jump into going through the actual passage today, I wanted to lay a little bit of extra background today. Because what we're talking about is really what the kingdom is like. And Jesus is teaching about what the kingdom of God is like. So in order to have a better understanding of what his audience would have understood when he talks about the kingdom, I want to make sure we go through what his audience, what the Jewish people of that day expected out of God's kingdom. Because this is something that has been prophesied and something that they've been looking forward to, that Messiah would come and establish the reign of God. And they were in the middle of this period then where politically they were under Roman reign and part of the Roman Empire. And Rome and the Jews had a lot of tension in their relationship and in that reign. And it started when Pompey came in to conquer Jerusalem and he entered the temple and he entered the most holy place. And in Jewish culture, that was a huge affront because the most holy place in the temple is a part that's set aside and separate. It's where the Ark of the Covenant is. And the priests, in order to go into there, they had, to, they had this purification ritual and they very, very strongly held to, you had to be prepared to enter the presence of the Most High. And you didn't go in there if you weren't prepared. And so then here comes this conqueror in and he goes into the temple and he goes into the most holy place. And then Rome wasn't really sure why the Jews had so much tension with them. And then it wasn't just this original uh, leader from the Roman Empire, but it continued with Herod Antipas. So this Herod married his brother's wife, and then he's also the one who imprisoned and then killed John the Baptist. And then his son began his reign in Judea and Samaria by slaughtering 3,000 people during the Jewish Passover. He later was then kicked out of his place of leadership for utter incompetence. Um, but as we see sort of this political environment of the Roman reign, we have the Jewish people who are very much looking forward to not being under the Roman kingdom anymore and part of the Roman nation, but are looking forward to the kingdom of God coming and being established on earth. So we see in the Bible during this time as they were waiting the Messiah to come, the prophetess Anna was waiting patiently for the redemption of Jerusalem. We also see Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, praying for salvation that combined both deliverance from their enemies, Rome, with the freedom to serve the Lord without fear. And then there are some people who took a different take on it. And so we had the zealots who attempted a violent armed rebellion to overthrow Rome to be able to practice their religion freely. And aside from just the, the political nature of the day, so the politics that came behind the Roman reign and the Roman Empire, we also had religiously, there were several prophecies that led into the kingdom. So for those of you who were here with us in the winter, uh, back in September, October, November, we talked through the different prophecies of Messiah, right? And so if you remember from there, there were a couple different prophecies that we went through regarding the kingdom and how Messiah was going to come in. And they were expecting Messiah to come in as the warrior king descendant of David. They were also expecting Messiah to usher in the final judgment as the second Elijah that was coming in. And then if we look at the book of Daniel, uh, we're going to go through that in a second, but they really thought that Rome was the final kingdom 
before God's kingdom was established. And that comes out of 1 Daniel 2. So this is where Daniel is working with Nebuchadnezzar and explaining one of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams to him. So that was the king of the day. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of the kings, of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. So the, Roman, or the Jewish people of this day really believed that Rome was that final kingdom, that iron, and that the kingdom of God was going to come in and obliterate the Roman kingdom and all the kingdoms that had come before and become this great and overwhelming power on the earth. And then we also see a little bit later in Daniel, so this is talking, what we now understand to be talking about the second coming of the Messiah. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So the Jewish people of this day, standing under Roman reign and the Roman Empire, were expecting God to come back through Messiah and absolutely obliterate all of those nations and all of that kingdom structure that was overpowering them, and for the kingdom of God to be set up by Messiah. So they were expecting this military, mighty warrior king to come in and overcome the Romans and rescue them and liberate them. Right? So their expectations of God's kingdom were that Messiah, the great warrior king, will come and forcibly overthrow the Roman Empire to set up the eternal kingdom of God on this earth. Now Jesus is coming in and letting them know, hey, this is what the kingdom is actually like. And we're going to step into that. So this passage has two proverbs at the beginning of it, so two sayings of wisdom. And then it ends with two different parables about what the kingdom is like. 
So these first two proverbs are how this section starts. And remember, this is coming right off of the parable of the sower, where the sower scatters out the seeds onto the different kinds of soil. And depending on what kind of soil it is, the seed either grows or is eaten by birds or grows up and then is, um, quickly dies away. And he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. It's kind of confusing, right? So this, these two sections of Proverbs appear kind of differently when we talk about Matthew and Luke. So Matthew and Luke, using Mark as a source text, explained these proverbs a little bit differently, and we'll go into each of those um, as we go through them. But both of them together, coming right after the parable of the sower and before these two parables about what the kingdom is like, seem to be saying, be careful how you hear the word of God, and be careful how you interact with and apply that word of God. So the first one is this, don't hide the lamp, right? And there's a couple of different other places that this appears in both Matthew and Luke. So in Matthew, we see this under the context of you Christians, people who follow Christ, are the salt and the light of the earth, and you also have this light, and don't hide that light. In Luke, we see it appear in a passage where they're discussing the purpose of the parables. So as they're talking about what these parables are and the fact that Jesus is teaching in these parables, then don't hide your light. And then in Luke, uh, later in Luke, in chapter 11, it's talked about in the context of the light within us from Christ. But here, it's a little bit different. It's coming right off that parable of the sower, where there might be a temptation to say, okay, look, since we don't control the kind of soil that the truth falls on, and since Jesus is saying, like, look, let those who have ears, let them hear, well, maybe we don't have to go out and preach this message in a world that can sometimes be hostile to the message. Let just those who have ears come and hear it from us. We don't have to do the work of actually going out. And what Jesus is saying here is, eh, not so much. You don't hide a light. You don't keep it in private. You don't hide it under a barrel or a bushel. You don't hide it under a bed. Instead, that light is made to be shined. That, made, that light is made to be shown and to illuminate the darkness, Right? And then as we go further into the explanation of the parables, Jesus uh, purposefully talks in parables to the crowd and then later explains it to the disciples. So the crowds don't necessarily understand the meaning of those parables, but then he explains it to the disciples later. But that private instruction to the disciples wasn't meant to be private and to be concealed for all of the rest of time, right? Jesus didn't want to try to hide the meaning of what he was saying by talking in parables. It was meant to be explained. It wasn't meant to be hidden. It was meant to be explained and to, to go out. And then we also see this transition from what is small and hidden in that lamp to what is made visible. And this is continued in the later parables that we see in this section. So then the other proverb that we have here is talking about measures. You know, in what measure you use, it will be given to you. And the parallel passages in Matthew and Luke are where, you know, they're talking about the speck in your brother's eye that you're trying to take out while you have the big two-by-four in your own eye. And then also in the parable of the talents, so where the master gives his servants different amounts of money, and then some of them go and use it and invest it and are able to make him more, and others don't. 
And then in Luke, it's in similar context. So we have don't judge others, which is similar to that speck in that plank passage. And then also the servants that are in varying states of readiness for their master's return based off of what they've done with what their master has given them. So as we go into these measures, it seems to be talking about increasing your faith and that your faith isn't something that's meant to be squirreled away and hidden in secrecy like the rich might try to increase their wealth in secrecy and keep all their wealth preserved for themselves. Instead, it's something that's meant to be shared and something that's meant to be given. And we're setting up for these seed parables, coming off of that parable of the sower and going into the parables of the seeds that we'll see in a little bit. And it seems to be saying, look, you might not be the one that's responsible for the growth of the kingdom. You might not be the one that's responsible for the growth of the message or the growth of the seeds that you're scattering. But that doesn't mean you get to sit back and do nothing. You don't get to sit back and be lazy and say, well, it's all in God's hands. I don't need to work to continue the kingdom here on earth. No. Jesus is saying, look, with the measure that you use, it will be measured onto you. You have to keep working. You have to keep working for God, even though the final outcome is not in your hands. So then we go into the first parable. And this is the parable of the growing seeds. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. So when we look at the parallel passages here, the parallel passage for this um, parable is in Matthew 13. And this is the parable where there's the wheat seeds that are sown, and then some punk comes along behind the farmer and sows a bunch of seeds for weeds, basically. The wheat and the tares is what it's called in Matthew. And the farmer sees these weeds start to grow up in the middle of all his wheat. And his workers come and say, oh, hey, this isn't good. We've got weeds in the middle of all our wheat. And weeds aren't productive. And he says, okay, let's let them grow up. Because if we keep going and we, we go in and we try to pick out all the weeds, we're going to pick out some of the healthy plants too, the plants that we want. So instead, let's let the wheat and the weeds grow up together. And then at harvest time, we'll separate the productive from the unproductive, so the wheat from the weeds. And then going back into Mark, there seems to be several more layers of meaning and layers of understanding here than what we see in Matthew. So the first is the harvester is often a symbol for final judgment. We often see that used uh, within the Bible. And so it, there seems to be this, this layer of meaning here, um, whereas this the seed is growing secretly, and then all of a sudden behind comes the harvest, behind comes the final judgment. It's can be read as a warning about the suddenness of the coming judgment. So when we talk about the second coming and uh, the final judgment, and that when, that when that second coming and when that final judgment comes, suddenly the kingdom of God will be revealed to all and will be made clear. But then there's also this layer of the kingdom growth being compared to that seed growth. So the farmer scatters a seed, and... Everybody remember in elementary school when we went through growing the seeds in the plastic bags so you could see it as it starts to sprout? And there's a lot of action that's happening in that seed while it's still in the ground and when we can't see it, right? And similarly, with the kingdom, even when you can't see growth of the kingdom of God and even when it seems like God's not working to further his kingdom here on earth, you've still got that seed that's doing an awful lot of growth hidden in the ground. 
So just because you can't see the growth of the kingdom doesn't mean it's not happening. And there's a lot that goes on with a seed that's hidden before finally that plant starts to push up. And then once that plant starts to push up, there seems to be a sudden growth as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and then it finally takes its final form. So similarly, just because you can't see the growth of the kingdom and just because you can't see God working to accomplish his purposes on earth doesn't mean he isn't working. So it's a message of hope for those of us who are kind of stuck in that middle period where the seed is starting to grow, but we can't see it. Don't worry, the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is growing, and God will accomplish his purpose. And then finally, we have the shifting roles of the farmer, right? So the farmer scatters his seed, and then he walks away, and it seems like he's not really doing a lot, but he's still keeping a watchful eye on everything to be able to come in for when the plant is ready for harvest. And that can, all, can somewhat be for us that we are the farmer who scatters the seed and then we're not the ones who are actually accomplishing that growth. But then remember what Jesus is talking to about the kingdom and what the kingdom is like to these people. And it can also be, you know, look, Jesus is coming as that farmer and scattering his seeds in his first coming, and then it's going to look like he's not doing a whole lot because he goes away. And we're still in that period of waiting for that second coming. God's still working in the middle of all that, but then at the final, we'll come have Jesus coming back in again as the farmer comes in for the harvest. So that's another layer of meaning here. And then we go into the parable of the mustard seed. How many of you have heard way too many sermons already in your life about the mustard seed? Yeah, you're going to hear another one, hopefully with a little bit of extra information. So Mark 4, 30 through 32, and he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like the grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So when we look at the mustard seed, when I Googled mustard tree, because of all the many sermons that you've heard, it was hard to actually tell what pictures were actually of the plant that was being talked about here and what were just our 20th, 21st century adaptation of what that should be. So from what I read and the best that I can tell, what Jesus is actually talking about here is the plant called Savadora persica. And these are small seeds, about twice the size of a poppy seed for you to, to be able to get an idea of that, that transforms into a large functional plant. And when we say tree, I'm not talking like the oaks or the, you know, the California redwoods that we see. It's actually a very large bush. So it's this really large bush that provides shade underneath it, that provides a place for the birds to be able to perch. And it is very, very hardy, and it can grow just about anywhere. And I found, so the, the academic article I looked at was actually looking at the seeds and the conditions under which the seeds of the Salvadora persica could grow. And these are very, very hardy seeds, but they're also dormant seeds until they go through this process called scarification. So in the article that I read, they actually dipped the seeds in acid to produce that scarification and then planted them. And the seeds were dormant until they underwent that process of scarification and that process of hardship that then activated them so that they would grow. But then once those seeds have been scarified and brought out of their dormancy, they're incredibly resilient. So they can grow with different amounts of salt in the soil at much wider range than most plants that are native to this region. And they can actually um, grow in less water than what the other plants can. So 
Similarly, the kingdom of God isn't averse to hardship, right? And it actually tends to be through hardship, through persecution, through that scarification process that the kingdom experiences its most natural and most native growth. And the kingdom of God is very hardy. So as we look at the mustard seed parallel passages, that is in Matthew 13 and Luke 13, both of those are focused on the person who's planting the seed for the shade or the shelter, whereas here in Mark, it seems to be more focused on the function of the grown plant. So the grown plant providing that place for the birds to light and providing that, that shade. So Mark isn't focused here on that process that leads to harvest, but instead, he's focused on the function of that fully grown plant. And as we look at that, so in the Old Testament, there was often the metaphor of great trees used to represent the different kingdoms of the world. So if you think about like our California redwoods, that's probably the best modern day analogy to what they would use in the Old Testament is that, you know, the great kingdoms are like these great trees that you can literally drive your car through that are great and mighty. So why is Jesus using a bush to compare it to the kingdom of God? So what he's saying here is the kingdom of God isn't like these great nations that you see around you, right? It's still, it's still a great plant, but it's different. It's not like these other trees that are around. It has a different function. It has a different purpose, and it grows in a much different way from the great nations, right? God's rule doesn't have to appear among the great and powerful because that's not how he works. It's going to look different from what people are expecting, so you have all these people who are expecting this great warrior king Messiah to come in and bring in this great kingdom of God that completely overthrows the Roman Empire. And Jesus is coming here and saying, yeah, the kingdom of God's not a tree, it's a bush. But it continues to grow. It can grow in a wide variety of conditions, and it's not adverse to hardship. It can still flourish in the middle of hardship. And you have this, this contrast. So you have the parable of the sower where these seeds, eh, maybe they grow, maybe they don't, depending on the condition of the soil. But mustard seeds, if they go into tilled ground, they're going to grow. And they're going to take over that tilled ground. And so the kingdom of God is going to be able to grow with certainty, and it doesn't depend on us. So then finally, we go into this section where Jesus makes some final remarks, or where Mark makes some final remarks on parables. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So that's comforting to me because not even the disciples understood what Jesus was trying to say without Jesus explaining it, right? And then like we talked about earlier with those two parables, just because Jesus only explained these to the disciples doesn't mean that the meaning of Jesus' parables were meant to be hidden or were meant to be secret or were meant to be concealed. Just like that light, it was something that was meant to be shared. And Mark is inviting us to come in like the disciples by providing those explanations to us. And remember, don't hide the lamp. All right, so some final applications, some final so what. First, humility, humility, humility. And this comes in two different ways. One, the religious scholars of Jesus' day had completely missed the meaning and completely missed the point when it came to interpreting those prophecies about what the kingdom of God was going to be like. And if those people who had spent so much more time than I have studying the word of God completely missed the point, I want to make sure I'm approaching it. I want to make sure we're approaching interpreting the word of God with humility and knowing that as 
as well as we can work to understand what God is trying to say to us through his word, we are not God, and we're going to miss the point sometimes, right? But then also, humility and knowing that the growth of the kingdom doesn't come from us. No matter how hard you work and no matter how well you work, that growth is not dependent on us. That growth comes from God and God alone. Now, on the flip side, that doesn't mean we get to squirrel away and hide away as we're growing our own faith, right? Because our faith wasn't meant to be private and wasn't meant to be hidden. Through this, there's, there's definitely this emphasis on going out and sharing. Don't hide that lamp. Go out and share what God has done for you. Go out and share what God is teaching. Go out and share God's truth because your faith isn't meant to be private and hidden. Finally, or not finally, next, the kingdom produces a certain harvest from nearly invisible beginnings. So even when you can't see God's work and when you can't see the growth of the kingdom, know that God is still working to accomplish his purpose, and he's still working. That seed is still growing under the ground, even if you can't see the progress and you can't see the growth. And the greatness of God's kingdom doesn't look like the greatness of human nations, so don't expect it to look that way. God works in different ways. And one last application point um, that didn't make it onto this slide, but just because the ultimate work of the kingdom is up to God and the ultimate growth of the kingdom is up to God, doesn't mean we get to sit back and do nothing. We should still be actively working to see God's purpose accomplished here on this earth. So with that, we're going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll step into a kind of time of communion. God, I thank you so much uh, for giving us this opportunity to come together. And I pray that the words that I've spoken today would be your words and not mine and that you would use that seed to grow in the lives and in the minds and the hearts of those who are listening to it this morning. And I pray that as we step into a time of communion, we would remember and appreciate your sacrifice for us and the work that you've done for us on the cross. And I pray this in your name. Amen. <laughs>